ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Welcome to another edition of The Minefield. We try to negotiate the ethical and moral dilemmas of modern life. Not sure how well we've been doing that recently. God, what a year it's been. Anyway, Walid Ali is my name. Scott Stevens is my co-host. Hey, Ro- roll on 2024. That's <laughs> Yeah, you know what? I feel like we've said that at the end of every year. Have we really? Yeah, only to look back nostalgically on the year that went and went, wasn't, wasn't those nice? Wasn't it great when it was only a pandemic? Yeah. <laughs> it's just heavens. I remember there was one year where a lot of celebrities died. I remember it was, I think, uh, Prince died. Mm. I think George Michael died at the end of that year. Carrie Fisher, I think, died in that year. Anyway, you get the picture. And I remember people thinking, oh, how horrible. What a horrible year. It couldn't get any worse than that. Mm. Well, well, guess what? Yeah. <laughs> Look, I, I'm. this has been a year that I think has taxed us. I, I mean, it's taxed us individually. It's taxed us Together, I think we've had some of the most heated conversations we've ever had in the history of our friendship this year. Um, I'm look. I, I'm I'm grateful for a show like this. The kind of moral and I would even say spiritual preparation that goes in to trying to get one's arms around each topic, and knowing that I've got an interlocutor like you on the other end, who I've long been so grateful for your capacity to call out vagueness and outright BS. And, um, and this, this has been one of those years when so much has happened. And we, we, you know, we are living in a new era of social incohesion, of divisions along lines that have been simmering and have now erupted along so many different axes. It feels like so many things that are beyond arm, uh, arm's reach are now uh, erupting in between us. In, in that, fact, we've discussed on this show, formally discovered in a Scanlon social cohesion report, the least cohesive we have been since that report began. There you are. So I think shows mm. like this, where we reach out tentatively to one another, we hold out our words to one another and say, is this how the world looks to you only to be told, nope. <laughs> there's, there's something about that which is, which Not is that nice. often. Not that often. And since we're throwing each other bouquets, I would say I'm very grateful for the many, many times... You expand my horizons and ask me to enlarge the picture that I am analysing. You know what we're getting back to here? This is, this is back to Piglet and Eeyore. You remember the... Uh... <laughs> for people who've been listening for a long time, you'll know exactly what I'm talking yeah, about. Yeah, but I've forgotten. Which one of us was Eeyore? You. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. My, my dour, thistle-eating friend. Anyway, that doesn't say anything particularly good about me. <laughs> you, you raised the pandemic before. Isn't it interesting? That kind of provides something like an artificial segue into what it is we're talking about today. I've been reading, Waleed, this really troubling, fascinating, wonderful book by one of Australia's greatest political theorists, Philip Pettit, called The State. You know, he's a fine political philosopher, and he said it struck him some years ago that for all the political philosophy that goes on about the nature, the character of democracy, forms of political obligation, uh, the structure even of the state and the moral standing of the state, we don't talk very much about the moral, uh, the moral standing of the state in our lives. The idea of state as a kind of, as in itself exercising a form, not just of moral agency, but also as constituting the conditions of possibility within which uh, good and just lives can take place. It's interesting to me, and so he devoted a whole book to doing just that. I've got my qualms about it. Maybe we'll have to talk to him about it next year. Um, but it is interesting to me that we, over the last four years, have been on something like a roller coaster. My two teenage boys have just recently discovered roller coasters, and my 50-year-old bones are having a really hard time. <laughs> That's another conversation. It's been a roller coaster over the last four years. If you just think back for a moment, back in 2019, all indications were that Australians' faith in politics and politicians had reached something approaching an all time low. And then the pandemic happens, and we're all rendered what? Mendicants of the state? We're 
turned into addressees of public health orders. And as we commented on the time, something really interesting about the Australian psyche revealed itself, which is when it comes down to it, when we're given orders, we obey. We might like to think of ourselves as a little bit radical, a little bit rebellious, but when it comes down to it, we do pretty much what we're told. And it seemed as though, much like we felt after the global financial crisis, it seemed as though the capacity of the state to flex its muscles over the conditions of our common life, uh, the idea of the state as a strong thing or a strong state as a good thing, uh, as having capacity to do what no other organization, no other corporation can, it seemed as though there was a degree to which our faith in politics was somewhat restored under those conditions. And media, briefly. And media, briefly. Good point. Why don't you take that up? Well, I think what it was, was um, suddenly the institutions that we'd built over time that had certain values embedded within them or certain um, roles that they were meant to play that were above and beyond commercial or self-interested, that were somehow civic or public. I think suddenly people rediscovered the importance of those values and institutions. We were we were in an era, or we've been in an era for so long of deconstruction, of trying to problematize and tear down more or less every institution we have, that sometimes we forget why they might be useful, hmm. why they might be good. At the same time, I think, as practitioners within those institutions, perhaps rediscovered their higher calling. That it is true, I think, that people within media, within government, have at times, you might even say a lot of the time, depending on the severity of your critique, behaved in a way that betrays that calling. A kind of unseriousness. Yeah. Mm. And that succumbs to lower values or lower interests, perhaps self-interest or whatever, or might even be outright cynical, so on. Um, and I would argue in the aftermath of the pandemic, we've seen the return of that pretty quickly. But there was something <laughs> about the... Pop. See, it, yeah. it's at this point that I need to hold a balloon up to the... <laughs> yeah. There was something about the gravity. I was going to say seriousness. It's not that. The gravity of an oncoming pandemic. Remember, especially that period where it was oncoming. Mm. We didn't know what it was, so we were left to our imagination as to how bad this could get. But we've heard the word pandemic before, and we have a sense it's among the worst things you can experience. It was at that moment, I think, that a lot of that cynicism, a lot of that self-interest got put aside. And both audiences and journalists, to focus on the media part of it, I think rediscovered each other's virtue. Hmm. And what you saw a lot less, I think, in media was kind of untethered outlandish opinion and much more deference to restrained fact-based discussion led by people who would know things that the rest of us don't. Right? Um, and I think what you saw from the audience was a valuing of that. And then it fell apart relatively quickly. And we saw the exact opposite. And can I add then, that one of the things that that reflects is that when health, safety, security are at stake, we tend to have a very clear sense of what it is that constitutes harm and where it is then that expertise and seriousness counts. I think one of the things that we discover in times of relative prosperity is that those things, those common goods that really should matter to us far more than they do, things that are far more fragile, that are easily overturned, that are easily undermined, those are the things that constitute the conditions of democratic life. I, I've always had a sympathy. I, I, don't, I don't agree with it. I wouldn't go through with it. But I've always had a sympathy to Simone Weil's insistence that anybody who dares lie in public knowingly uh, ought to be thrown in jail because they have just unleashed the plague within <laughs> civilized life. Uh, I think uh, it's she's not right, but the idea that the pollution of our common space with unseriousness, with mendacity, the fact that that does tremendous harm to our capacity to live together and to experience a common world, um, that is something that we, I, I've always felt we ought to take far more seriously. Yeah, I think the transition was from a a broader ethic or an atmosphere of self-interested bad faith. Yeah, good. That's right. To one of good faith. And deference. In the face of mm. a profound threat. Yeah, good. 
This is an extension, I guess, of, you know, Ulrich Beck's argument that if you want world peace, you need to arrange a war with Mars. Once something seriously grave hoved into view, there was no time for the cynicism. There was no time for the bad faith because... My God, we had a real problem to solve, <laughs> and it's at Unlike that moment all the other political problems we have to deal with. It's at that <laughs> moment when not real it's at that moment when you read that from Beck, you decided I need to do a PhD on this guy. <laughs> yeah, that was it, indeed. Hey, um, so just pivoting slightly back to the idea of the state, it has become clear though, and if you just allow me these two steps, it'll be a weird argument, but bear with me. It has become clear, I think. Not only was it clear to us that a strong state that has the ability to do things and to marshal resources that are not otherwise available to any other corporation, any other body within our common life, that that is an unqualified good, that that is something that is necessary in times of crisis. The paradox of that is that the state builds up those capabilities it builds up that capacity to respond to a crisis in a way that conforms to the criteria whereby uh, that response can be regarded as being democratic, politically justifiable, and indeed simply just. Um, It builds up those capacities during times of prosperity. And during times of prosperity and relative quiescence, those are the times when the public seems to have the least amount of confidence or interest in the state. And it's during those times that politicians like going out of their way, for instance, to say that a smaller state is a better thing. We need to look for market solutions to political problems and so on. In other words, in the very time that we ought to be building up state capacity and ought to be instilling a kind of public confidence in the state and in the idea of a, a larger state, a more prominent state as something that is a good thing within our common life. It's under those circumstances that the state is essentially frequently diminished, demeaned, pillaged. And this then raises, I think, the other paradox, which is during elections, politicians like to boast about how potent they are, how much they would be able to do, or how much they did during their previous term in government. But then within government, They tend to say, well, you don't understand. I don't have the ability to do this. That's the RBA's job. Or under the conditions of the pandemic. This isn't a decision that I'm making. I'm simply following the science. And so we have this kind of double paradox, I think, where we need to be clear-sighted about what the state can do, about what the state should do, about what its role should be in our common life and the extent to which its reach ought ought to run in between the lives of the citizens and not simply be, as we've described it on other programs, a kind of service provider that rumbles away in the background and that people just need to be confident that it's it's there when they need it. But at the same time, we need to be clear-eyed about the temptations that are there within modern politics to so diminish and to demean the idea of the state, perhaps not in a kind of fiscal effort to shed public funds and send those public funds back into the private sector, but rather in the interests of holding off attributions of control. Because with control comes responsibility. And with responsibility comes accountability. And so here I think we're left in this really interesting situation where we want a strong state, we want an accountable state under conditions of crisis, but we tend not to value those things outside of times of crisis. And then when we're in the crisis, we, don't, we aren't able to bring to bear the resources necessary to scrutinize what the state did, the manner in which it did it, and the extent to which maybe it could have done it in a manner that was more responsive, responsible, and democratically appropriate. I'm not sure I agree with Good. all of that. Good. Go on. I think the bit I disagree with is I think what you were describing might have been correct 10 years ago, five years ago. I think actually what we've seen is far more of a turn towards the state as an active presence in life. And especially, I think that's true in Australia. So you look at things like the NDIS or perhaps even the NBN. Mm-hmm. Without you're, wanting to... You're actually making to... my point for me, by the way, Willie. Okay, how's that? No, no, keep, keep going, keep going. I'm going to give you as much rope as you want. 
<laughs> yes, suitably ominous. Um, in other words, I think what has happened is actually a social expectation that the state does have an enlarged role yes, uh, and that it is to be at more or less the centre of our lives. So when we... So, for example, it would now be, I think, more or less inconceivable in a post-NDIS world to run an argument, anything along the lines of um, support for people with disability and care for people with disability is actually rightly the stuff of civil society Mm. and family structure and so Like that sort of argument, which probably might work in a place like Europe, I'm guessing. I don't Mm. know for sure. Um, That just can't fly. That would never fly here. There is a bipartisan agreement now on the very concept of an idea of That's an right. NDS. The alternative is NDS, simply NDS. too capricious, and it allows yes. it allows people who are otherwise vulnerable to be left up to fortune, effectively, and would be regarded as such. And, That's right. Agreed. Right. Agreed. Um, we tend to look for state-centric responses or solutions to many of our social problems. How many times do we decide that we have a social problem? It therefore must be tackled in schools. Mm. Uh, by unroll, like rolling out some kind of education program on X or Y or whatever. Thereby, Ra- like racism, it stops with me or... Yeah, could be that. Consent could be, or, yeah. Yeah, can, yeah, all those sorts of things. Mm. So you get this thing where our imagination seems to be, in a way, confined to the state as the solution to problems. Interesting. That's a pre-pandemic thing because that was all happening before the pandemic. What the pandemic did, I think, was put us in almost a more comfortable position of shifting the responsibility towards the state. What was perhaps a bit less comfortable <clears throat> was investing the state with that much power. Mm. But even then, as you've identified, most people were quite happy to go along with that. And a lot of people would have you know, fought tooth and nail for that. The voices that were speaking against that were, I think, largely considered to be either the minority or in some cases quite fringe. Mm because only the state had the capacity to protect us against these people, sorry, this, this threat. So why, while it is true that there remains a strand in politics that is sceptical of the state, that regards it as something that needs to be shrunk and not just for fiscal purposes and so on, I think that's becoming much more and more a, minor, a minority position. And the fact that, that that sort of view would have its natural home now that the Liberal Democrats don't have a presence in the parliament through David Lionholm... Um, within the Liberal Party, it is nonetheless the Liberal Party that has signed up to a lot of these things, even if they have criticisms about how much it should be funded or precisely what should be covered and so on. The overall concept, the the centre of gravity, the direction of travel, I think is moving in the opposite direction. Fabulous. In some ways, the pandemic came at the right time for that. Mm. Um, If it had come 20 years earlier, I think it might have been a very different sort of story. Mm. And in fact, I'd push you one step further on that and just taking what George Megalogenis told us many years ago quite seriously, there was something decisive about the global financial crisis that reoriented yep. uh, many citizens, many Australians' con- concept about what the state could do, what it must do, and hence the limits of the market and the importance of something like uh, the public, the public interest, and therefore the capacity of the state to fill that space. I don't disagree with anything that you just said, Walid. I think that's all, that's all wonderful. There are two things to point out, though, and then I want to bring in our guest because I think this is going to be an incredible three-way conversation. We are, I think we agree about a lot, but I think the three of us are going to be subtly different from one another. Um, if you think about what the state was in Australia in the post-war period, you know, there was something about both the trauma and the destruction of the war, but also something about the civic capacities that the war produced in the UK, to some extent in places like the US. In the US, it's just different. It's just different on all sorts of different levels. But also here, so that the state, the ability on the part of the state to expand and to fill virtually every aspect of social life, not just through social housing, massive building projects, But also, if you think about the sheer number of things in this country alone that the state owned, that the state was responsible for, that the state controlled, and then you have relatively high rates of political party membership, and then you have the presence of the unions, 
And everything is kind of bound together in this... Ex- Institutions were thick. That's what happened. Institutions were thick. Now, you could say that there were tremendous inefficiencies. You could say that there was a sluggishness. You could say that there was a lack of competitiveness. Um, and all of these things, to some extent, came true with the stagflation crisis of the 1970s through to the 1980s. You then see the importance of the, uh, I don't, I mean, people can make different evaluations of whether or not it was a good thing, but you can see the importance of the accord that was struck between the Hawke government and the unions, which really led to the precipitous decline in the role of the unions and the power that they played within Australian uh, political life. Um, And then you see from the early 80s onwards, you see the slow but sure shedding of all of these different forms of state ownership, the privatization of these things that once loomed so large in our common life, which means that from, say, the late 1980s, early 1990s through to the present, you see this yawning gap beginning to form between states and citizens. So you don't have the thick network of civic society institutions here, the way that they exist, say, in the U.S. or the U.K. Um, You don't have unions. You have diminishing party membership. You have the state, to some extent, taking a more modest, even a more regulatory role within Australian life. And you don't have the forms of communication from citizens to the state outside of elections so that citizens can hold the state to account, can communicate their desires their wishes in a matter that's going to be, uh, to use a wonderful term that Pierre Rosenvalon uses, so that those demands can be mutually legible. In other words, the state understands what citizens are saying, and then citizens can understand what the state is saying back. So you have this, you have this gap beginning to form between states and citizens where more and more over that period is expected of the state, but the state no longer has anything like the capacities to be able to deliver what is being expected. And that's when you have the emergence of something that's been kind of seismic, I think, in many respects. And that is the reliance on the part of the state on non-state providers for the provision of fundamental services. So even uh, if you, This is why the NDIS is proving your point. Yes. So the yeah. NDIS is a vital legislative mechanism. It's a marvelous thing that Australia has done it. But it's been put out for tender effectively. It's been made a matter of competition. And that same pattern, a state that regulates, but services that are provided by non-state entities. So the state, to some extent, is shrinking in its capacities at the very same time that it's becoming, uh, that more and more citizens are expecting more of it, and the state itself is becoming increasingly reliant on non-state actors. And here I would just make the final reference to the scandal. I I don't know how closely you followed it. I imagine very closely. But what surrounded PricewaterhouseCoopers is here. The outsourcing of advice and then what happens when you outsource political advice to a for-profit consultancy agency. Well, and the general template of cutting back the public service and privatizing consultancy and advice. Exactly right. Yeah, I understand that. But I think what that obscures, what that analysis obscures is the direction of travel. It's one thing to say that the state doesn't have the capacity to do all these things that it's committed to. But one of the reasons it doesn't is that we've been through that period of, what what do you want to call it, liberalisation? Whatever, right? We've been through that period. And actually now what we're seeing is an expansion of the role of the state. Mm. The, The resources of the state can never keep up with that. And indeed, if you tried to expand the resources of the state to keep up with that, the tax burden would be heroic. I don't actually know how exactly... That may or may not be the case, actually. Yeah, okay. Well, well, I'll leave that to... Sure. Because I get the argument is because when you outsource, you end up paying private consultants and that Mm. might be more expensive in the long run. Okay, I see that sort of argument. But I still think in the end, that's what it would be, right? I mean, education funding, an example, that's been going up and up, but the demands on schools are so much more and our performance is getting worse. That's right. Right. So it's not actually all about resourcing, and part of it is about just the just what is being put on, sometimes what the state is taking on for itself, but what is being expected of it. And that's before you even factor in the unique conditions of the pandemic and the sheer tonnage of government spending and support that happened there. Um, that's part of the reason we're now in an inflation problem. Mm, right? That's right. So, yeah, the, the direction of travel in all this 
is one of an expansion in the role of the state conceptually. Yes, that's right. That's not to say that it's in every nook and cranny doing all the things, but if you're comparing this to what we had 10 years ago, I think it's actually more of an investment in the capacity of the state psychologically, right? We are psychologically now invested in the idea that the state will do things to the extent that the Victorian government recently won an election pledging to reintroduce the State Electricity Commission effectively, Mm. which would have been unimaginable 10 years ago. Which again is a response to the cost of living crisis. And I think what... And and power failures and all sorts of things. That's right. But what we're looking at, I think, now that we've been through two global crises over the last decade, and now that we have a sequence of highly anticipatable crises on the horizon. You can imagine, you can see, can't you, that the need for the state and for the state to have the capacity to respond and to respond in a manner that is both going to be responsive to what people actually need rather than broad brush, but also responsible in the sense of being legible to the people, being able to be uh, so that politicians, decision makers can be held to account so that it doesn't suffer from the kind of opacity that often prevails when you have consultants or that sort of outsourcing. This is where in order to hold together our expectations of the state with the nature of that state as being a good within democratic life, uh, this is where the preparedness on our part for that state to correspondingly, how do we put it, bulk up? Um, That I think may well be a very, very, very important matter for the future. Let's bring in our guest. Our guest has written the book on this particular topic. Shaha Hamieri is Professor of International Politics at the University of Queensland with Tom Chodor. He's written a wonderful new book called The Locked Up Country, Learning the Lessons from Australia's COVID-19 Response. Shaha, thank you so much for joining us again on The Minefield. Yeah, great to be here and uh, great to this time uh, be with you uh, in the studio, whereas last time uh, it was the time of uh, lockdown and we were discussing um, over the phone. So that's a welcome change for me. It is a nice change. So... Take it away. You've heard what we've had to say. Where do you want to pick up this particular conversation? Well, I think that uh, the point to, I think, underscore that brings together a lot of what you both were talking about is that the state is not a thing. The state is a set of social relationships and it changes over time. But it changes over time in a way that is connected to the changes in society. Uh, This is why the best theorists on the state, by and large, are not political scientists. They're actually sociologists. If we understand it in those terms, we can see that actually, as uh, your conversation previously showed, the the state has changed enormously over the decades since World War II and it is continuing to change. So uh, some of the more recent changes uh, that Waleed in particular was talking about in terms of bringing back uh, a more central presence for the state in a a wider areas of of life, um, perhaps, you know, taking us from the kind of high point of liberalisation maybe uh, 15, 20 years ago. I think that's absolutely true. But we're arriving at that at a point where those thick connections between society and state are actually still very weak. So the risk there, and I think it's a genuine risk, is that the state does not become responsive. It actually becomes increasingly more authoritarian because it is responding to society in a very narrow sense. Maybe uh, there are a number of different ways obviously elections, but a number of limited ways in which the state or people in society can express themselves to the state. Um, But beyond that, I think a lot of those powers that have been accumulated may not necessarily be ones that are attached to any kind of wider social project, wider, you know, uh, sense of representing a clear set of interests in society. And I think that is a problem that at least worries me in terms of some of the changes that we've seen recently. Uh, with the states taking back or adopting new capacities in relation to more recent crises. I just want to ask you about the question of legibility mm-hmm. or communicability. This, this for me has been one of the really problematic developments, especially within democratic contexts over the last three decades. You know, Bill Clinton famously, you know, the people have spoken, now we just need to find out what they said. Effectively, we heard voices, but we don't know what it meant. You could say to some extent that people now expect the state to be more responsive to their demands, to their insistences than ever. We expect to be heard. And yet the traditional mechanisms whereby those plurality of interests, those plurality of voices 
you could say that on, on the one hand, they are being communicated, usually through marches, through protests, maybe through grassroots political movements that then surface at unusual elections during referenda, for instance. But many of those other mechanisms outside of unusual events seem to have broken down. So you could say, we want the state to be more responsive, but to whom exactly? Through whom? How are we supposed to take a popular demand and turn it into political action or even give it some kind of legislative effect? What are the mechanisms that used to bind citizens to states? And if I'm right that many of those mechanisms are not coming back, what then? Well, I think you hit the nail on the head there. I think that the uh, problem is that we came from a time of mass politics and political parties were the representatives of mass movements and then were able to... uh, obviously not perfectly, but generate those interests, project them onto the state. Uh, And we had a pretty clear idea who they're representing, what their political platforms were, and what they're trying to achieve if they secure government. I don't think we're in that world anymore, as he said. Uh, Those mass movements do not exist anymore. I think that uh, our society is incredibly fragmented um, and the range of interests that uh, are expressed through a variety of forms um, is now uh, not necessarily that something that political parties that we have today can clearly reflect. There is great work that uh, that I recommend anyone would read by Peter Mayer, who's a political scientist that passed, unfortunately, a few years ago. And, and in that work, he talks about the emergence of the cartel party. So whereas the party in the, in the era of mass politics used to represent civil society or society at large within the state, currently political parties are essentially representatives of the state in society. They draw on the resources of the state in order to remain in power by engaging society in, in several ways, you know, that, that allowed them to then get re-elected come election time. And I think that model, if you like, has run its course. So we, we're now at a point where, not so much in Australia, and we can talk about why that is, but we see the emergence of various expressions of, of anger in many parts of the world, mostly on the populist right to a more limited extent on the populist left. And I think that's a reflection on on this disconnect, this void that has opened up between those who govern and those who are being governed. But we can't go back to the 1950s. We can't go back to an earlier era of those mass movements. So we need to figure out, this is not something that I have a clear answer to, unfortunately, maybe one of your listeners would. Uh, We need to figure out what would a responsive state or responsive political system look like in our current context because we don't have it. And I think it's also important to say that in no small part, the current scene, the, the current political system and the, the void between political parties and the state more generally and society was in a sense created on purpose because it emerged in a crisis in the 1970s um, that was perceived by political elites at the time in Australia, certainly on both sides of politics, as the result of a state that is overburdened with too many expectations from society. So it was created on purpose, but now that we see the pathologies of that process, we don't really know what to do about it. Because I think that some political leaders at least are genuine in saying that they would like to learn more about what the public wants, they would like to reflect that uh, with constraints. Maybe some of them are more genuine than others, but I'm sure some of them are. But we don't quite have those connections, those mechanisms that allow us to do that. So I wonder if what we're really talking about here is that once upon a time, the state could potentially be expansive because it was a reflection of society in some way or other. Now, what we don't have is a society. Hmm. Or, to put it in the language that you've just referred to there, Shahar, it might be true that politicians want to know what the public wants. The trouble is, there's no public. What we have instead is an amalgam of dissent. And we've discussed this on the show a Mm. lot, so I don't want to belabor the point. But what we don't have are sort of clear communities in any kind of meaningful plurality of assent. And in that circumstance, anything that is a centralised representative institution, like government, can only be alienated from the people because the people themselves are alienated from one another. The glue just isn't there. Now, you could point to all causes for that forever. One of the causes may indeed be the liberalisation of the state and the liberalisation of society and the erosion of some of those thick civil society institutions that people were once connected by. The church is an example of that, or you could possibly even say unions example of that. All kinds of civil society institutions that have been thinned out 
And then when you try to re-thicken society by shoving more responsibility on the state, well, there aren't the thick social bonds that work as the basis for that. That might be one explanation. Another explanation, perhaps as a result of what I've just said, are things to do with the fracturing of our informational landscape. We've spoken endlessly about social media silos and so on. Even media, you know, commercially driven silos and media models, business models that work precisely on the basis of creating a silo such that we're no longer speaking across or to one another, but to those who are already like-minded about one another, all these sorts of things. In that case, I understand you've invited our audiences to solve this. So dear listener, it's on you to solve it. Shahar has made that clear. I don't know how you solve it when the fundamental antecedents of any solution aren't there. How do you have a marriage between politics and society when you don't have society in its truest, fullest sense in the first place. Just before you pick this up, if I can add a little footnote to link this back to a previous show that that we did. I mean, some of Peter Lewis's work in the aftermath of the referendum, I found incredibly interesting, but also a little bit despair-inducing. That the greater the likelihood that someone had to, say, belong to some kind of civil society organization, the greater the likelihood of them getting behind a yes vote, uh, or getting behind the voice to parliament. The more atomized they were, the percentages towards no were almost overwhelming. In other words, if you're part of society, in the sense that Walid is drawing on it, there's that capacity for amalgam to come together in favor of something. When you don't have that, then you have the phenomenon that Pierre Rosenvallon describes as the aggregation of dissent, which means you can get people together to vote out. You can get people together to overturn but there's nowhere near enough of that civil bond, that capacity for social cooperation to get behind something that might be more constructive or that might be more forward-looking. So I think even though Walid's kind of described in seemingly hyperbolic, there's no public, I mean, there is something about this that really does bear that out. We are bound together to the extent that we are bound together ephemerally, fleetingly, and in order to overturn or to refuse something rather than to pursue something in common, which is obviously the objective of government. Yeah, I think you're both right about that. I mean, we, we have seen a number of times recently the star of particular political movements or even uh, political leaders rise very quickly, um, but then descend pretty much as fast as they've risen. I think that's an expression of these dynamics. I think that at the very least, we need to acknowledge that that is the problem that we're facing um, and that no amount of institutional design and fixes within the state itself is going to resolve that problem. Because when uh, things go wrong, there is certainly a tendency, let's take the pandemic as an example, to say, well, what we need is an Australian Centre for Disease Control, uh, aptly titled ACDC. And uh, <laughs> if only for that reason. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yes. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm all for that. Um, and um, I think we do need that. But if that's all we're going to get, if that's the only lesson that we're going to pick out of this massive crisis that we've all just been through, uh, I just don't think that's enough. But the thing is, there is no way that uh, someone like me can come to the studio or anywhere else and just magic a particular political movement and say that is what we need because history tells us that is not the way in which political movements, large movements have emerged. They've emerged usually from the grassroots. And whatever that movement is going to look like today is going to have to be dependent on the conditions that we have today. So I think maybe, I, I don't know, I mean, that could be a, a, a bit of a far-fetched idea. But if you look at something like the Gilets jaunes, for instance, in France, which obviously had some troubling elements as well, but this was a movement that was organized around this idea of a right to consumption, right? Um, so that is quite a different sort of movement from, say, you know, unions back in the day. Now, I'm not saying that their particular demands were the right ones, but that is an example of a political movement that can emerge in our times that responds to the challenges of our times. It was dressed up as a positive claim, a right to consumption. I'm not necessarily agreeing with their points. I'm saying that those kinds of ideas that could be expressed in the form of political movements or, or new political parties must respond to the challenges of our time. And to me, that is just an example of a political movement that obviously was, uh, you know, not not to not long lived, you know, and, and uh, maybe that's a good thing. But at the same time, it expressed its its desires in terms that speak to the challenges that people face today. And and I think that whatever that movement is going to look like, or movements that would emerge, if they were to emerge, which is not in, not certain at all, I think there would have to be 
movements that not look back to, say, the history of organized labor, whatever we think about that, or any of those kinds of movements of the 19th century or the early 20th century, the era of mass politics, but they would have to find a new way of coming together and expressing collective interests and making the state respond to those interests. And that would also, to me, would involve actually becoming involved in politics and actually taking power, because a lot of the movements that came, say, in the wake of the global financial crisis, like Occupy Wall Street, were animated by often anarchist ideas and were quite proud to say they're leaderless. But then that energy dissipated uh, and there wasn't really much to show for it. There was still no substitute to becoming involved in politics through the state and actually expressing collective ideas and interests in this way. There is no other way. Shaha, there's something you fleetingly made reference to then that really interests me. Firstly, just to go back for a moment to Gilets Jaunes, the yellow vest. You know, it was a movement that was predicated on a seemingly positive claim, the right to. And, and you know, there were other elements, you're right, that were brought under that, that were smuggled in, that was also anti-cosmopolitan, that tended towards anti-immigration and so on. But again, it's one of those, that and even Occupy Wall Street, they're kind of the exceptions that prove the rule, aren't they? That here you had forms of mass refusal. Gilets jaunes is refusal of a particular tax. So you can do without that. You can do away with that with enough energy, with enough short-term popular mobilization. But then the question that you then raised, what comes next? That is then the thing that's left hanging and ultimately unresolved. I'm interested in the distinction, the subtle distinction you made there between governing and governance. Because Power is the stuff of governance, whereas governing is the stuff of regulation, effectively. It's the stuff of the enforcing of certain norms and rules and ensuring compliance. It's supervision. It's management. All of the stuff that we're quite familiar with and quite happy with today, whereas government is power. Government is the exercise of power and the capacity for power. Government is also then ultimately, in a non-authoritarian state, is responsibility. If you exercise control, then you need to be prepared to be scrutinized. And this is where governments need to render themselves legible, transparent uh, to the people. And then it also means responsibility for the decisions you made. And it's that fear of responsibility that I think motivates quite a number of the political decisions we've seen made over the last decade. It's also motivated some of the more ignominious decisions that we've seen, such as well, even I've discussed it before on the show, Scott Morrison's decision to accumulate a number of decision-making capacities without the corresponding responsibility and transparency that comes with it. So this gap, this distinction between governing and governance, it's one that really interests me. Yeah, look, I mean, that to me is the central story of Australia's pandemic response. And in fact, many of the crises that Australia has dealt with um, for quite a long time, and it's not an Australian story in particular, it's happened in many other countries that have travelled a similar trajectory in the post-World War II era. And I think, um, as you say, government generally comes as a hierarchy. Hierarchies have become unpopular. People don't like them, uh, or at least... We say we don't like them. We say we don't like them. Uh, we, we don't like the fact that they can be sometimes sluggish, as you say. They sometimes uh, it takes a long time for information to travel. All those kinds of critiques have been around for a while. People were saying societies become too complex for hierarchies and so on, justifying the rise of more nebulous forms of governance, which I'll talk about in a second. Uh, but yes, I mean, in hierarchy, you know who's in charge. If you know who's in charge and you know what they're responsible for, you can actually hold them accountable. Uh, the argument that we make in the book is that the changes that were made, which many people call, say, neoliberalism or terms that are you know, usually a reference to the rise of markets over state, we don't think that is the story at all. In fact, we can see that, firstly, the state's role, if measured in terms of public spending, has not changed in Australia. Uh, really, it's gone up in many, in many instances. Uh, we see that the number of regulations, so it's not deregulation either. There's lots of regulation, in fact, many, many more than there used to be in the era of social democracy. Um, so it's neither that. But what it really is about is the change in the relationship between those who are elected, the government, uh, and the people who put them there, which is the rest of us, by creating an arm's length between them and policy and its outcomes. And the way to do that is through governance. And governance is a term that encapsulates a very wide range of relationships and institutional organization and so on. 
But what it really speaks to is that the government, rather than directing those who are doing things, is creating conditions, rules, standards, audits that try to somehow get all these different organisations, many of them are not actually inside the state, as you mentioned before in your conversation, to travel somehow in the same direction. And that's what people, um, we, we use the term as well, called a regulatory state. And the big story here is really that it allows government, and we've seen that happen time and again, to turn around and say, well, we're really sorry, we are actually constrained because this is an independent organisation, let's say the Reserve Bank of Australia, monetary policy is their purview. You can elect any government you want, but we're not going to deal with that because that is outside of what government is for. Um, they can grumble about it. We hear current Treasurer Chalmers, uh, Jim Chalmers, grumbling about the RBA a lot, but he will not seize power back from the RBA because to do that would be to make himself responsible for monetary policy and to make himself responsible for the outcomes of monetary policy and potentially also be accountable for it. But also it would create, I mean, we need to be fair on that issue. It creates a risk that politicians end up making decisions about interest rates for political purposes Mm, mm. with deleterious economic consequences. As we've seen, I mean, we saw that in Turkey just recently, didn't we, where there was a refusal to do anything about interest rates and inflation started running at something close to 100%. I mean, obviously more factors than one, but... You see the point that I'm making. It was it was born out of that experience of really high interest rates through the '90s. So, uh, I mean, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I hear what you're saying, and I think the analysis is persuasive. I just wouldn't want it to be seen as like a purely ideological project, as a way mm-hmm. of just separating oneself from responsibility, as though that's really what it's about, as opposed to any genuine commitment to good policymaking in a particular area that is apt for political imperatives to trump economic ones. Oh, absolutely. Look, I mean, this is the tragedy of the story, right? We tell that story in the book, not in a way that necessarily says that those people who did back, what they did back in the 1980s were, were evil or they were necessarily not inclined to pursue good public policy. They did what they thought had to be done in the context of a very significant crisis that was affecting Australia through the 70s and into the early 80s, not just Australia, many other countries, they thought that that what had to be done because the state was too responsive in their view um, and because of that was pursuing policies, including on interest rates, for instance, that were not conducive to resolving that crisis and that the alternative would have been a lot worse. So they, they pursued these kinds of policies, but in doing so, they created these pathologies in how the state works. And that means that when we've come upon a big crisis, as we've just faced with the pandemic, we didn't have the tools that we could have had in order to, to address this pandemic. Now, it could have been a different story. Maybe there could have been, sorry, a different pathway that could have been pursued. I would like to think so. I mean, I don't think the pathway that Australia pursued was the only one available. And maybe there was a way of addressing that crisis without actually generating these pathologies, which we basically all experience. Um, and I think um, that's a hypothetical, but the question is, or counterfactual in this case, but what are we going to do moving forward? And I think that's probably more important. Is it clear, though, that a state of greater strength and capacity would have performed better? I mean, I know cross-country comparisons for COVID are perilous because of huge differences in economic circumstances, political culture, all kinds of things, population density, any number of things. But I wouldn't, for example, look at the way that, I don't know, China handled the pandemic and say that it was a triumph. It was certainly much stronger in the sense they had a lot of capacity. I mean, they literally had the capacity to weld people in their their homes. Um, But the end result of it seems to have been a disaster, at least to my eye. There were nations that had far less interventionist responses. You could argue that they did worse than Australia. But, you know, it becomes a bit of an argument as to whether or not they did because it depends a little bit on what you value. And here I'm thinking of countries that decided not to lock down as much and so on and so Mm. rely less on the capacity of the state. Um, I I just wonder whether or not it's as simple a vector as all that. I don't think that the capacity of the state to lock down is an indication of a capable state. Uh, To me, lockdown is actually a reflection of state failure because it means that you had to go for the bluntest, most destructive instrument um, and in many cases resort to it time and again in order to address an issue that we know that other countries 
you know, obviously uh, not perfectly. There are people who died from COVID-19 in every country. Uh, it, it was a pandemic. It was a very serious crisis, as we know. Uh, but it doesn't mean that that was the only way to deal with it. And we do provide briefly examples of, say, Korea, a country that was able to keep the number of, of mortalities with COVID-19 compared to other countries uh, to a lower level, but did that without locking down because it was able to do certain things, especially to trace, test and isolate people with COVID-19 better than Australian states or overall the Australian state was able to do. I think that actually the Chinese uh, stories, if you like, a cautionary tale. Uh, I, I was just over in China and, and the legacy of the COVID response is everywhere. I mean, the, uh, the amount of surveillance now and, you know, uh, all sorts of instruments that were put in place that were not there before the pandemic is, is palpable. And that is absolutely not what I would like to see happen here. I guess the other, I mean, the flip side of this, just as a final question, is that when the state has so many fewer arms able to interact with the public. It means that those that are left are left with kind of disproportionate responsibilities. And here you think of the role that the ADF had to play in not least distribution and to some extent even enforcement in certain areas in a state that had a slightly thicker peacetime capacity. Let's just put it that way. Those kinds of measures would not have had to have been used by, speaking of a blunt object, by that kind of object. Yeah, absolutely. I think the example of the ADF is absolutely instructive here because the government had to go back to the ADF time and again, including to do things like staff aged care facilities. Why did they have to do that? It's because that connection between government and those who have the capacity of resourcing to do things has been not severed, but has been weakened over time. And you left with very few levers, and the ADF is one of those levers. So the government pulls on that lever often because when something needs to happen, and it needs to happen fast, and you need to do it in a very purposive and directive way, where else do you go? Uh, and and um, that's not, I think, a sustainable situation. We know that it's not sustainable from the ADF's point of view, uh, but it's certainly, I don't think, healthy for us to have to go to the military as a society every time that there's a crisis, including in areas that have very little to do with the ADF's mission. Mm. It's also not healthy that we seem to like it. <laughs> we seem to think Absolutely. this is some kind of triumphal sign that we're getting serious about things. Um, Shahar, always great to speak to you. Yeah, thanks Especially for Especially in studio, as you know. Thank you very much for coming along today. Thank you. That's Shahar Hamiri, who's Professor of International Politics at the University of Queensland and the co-author of The Locked Up Country, learning the lessons from Australia's COVID-19 response. How dare a Queenslander call the country locked up? What would he know? Oh, sorry, Shahar's still here. Um, he's, I guess, for this week's edition of The Mindfield. We'll see you next week. listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.